Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back. It's been about seven or eight days since our last episode, but it seems like a lot longer than that. I'm Nathan Strauss, joined by a man who is not recovering from hypothermia after playing a World Cup qualifier in Minnesota in early February. It is Caleb Rhodes. No, I kind of have the opposite problem. For whatever reason, my apartment is like sweltering. I... I it got so bad. I literally opened the window the other day when it was, you know, negative degrees out. I also have a humidifier now because I've been drying out like a raisin. Uh, but definitely very different problems than uh, what the uh, hundreds, especially, were were enduring uh, last night. And uh, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of detail. <laughs> no, but I mean, I love it. Fair, I lo- it, really yeah. sets, it really sets the scene. It really sets the scene quite well. Uh, honestly, I can just picture you drying up like a prune. Uh, and we're also joined by a man whose uh, who's, who's, his team's star wingers are going to face off for some silverware in three days' time, Nick Vinden. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, and we're obviously referring to the fact that Senegal and Egypt are going to be playing in the uh, AFCON final, and Liverpool fans are going to be torn between who to root for. And I don't even think I am going to pick someone to root for. I just think I want success for both Mo Salah and Sadio Mane. And I think whichever one of them loses is probably going to come back to Liverpool with a fire lit under their asses. And, you know, whoever wins is going to come back with, you know, equal motivation to push for more silverware. So really it is a win-win for the club. But yeah, I'm, I'm really, I mean, this is an ideal situation for both AFCON and Liverpool fans, but I'm really eager to, you know, see what's what's going on. Yeah, that game, by the way, on February 6th, which is Sunday uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern. Senegal are slight favorites uh, in that one. But I figure we may as well start off a little closer to home with some CONCACAF news and specifically looking at Team USA's last couple of matches. A nervy 1-0 win over El Salvador that probably should have been a lot more. Getting kind of tonked up in Canada 2-0 by the Canadians who are a win away from clinching their appearance in Qatar before the craziness in one of the coldest games in U.S. men's national team history, winning 3-0 last night um, in frigid Allianz Field uh, in Minnesota. So I'm curious, you know, we saw a lot of different players and a lot of different tactics as well. U.S. sits in second place right now in the octagon. I'm pretty pleased with what we saw. Um, over the last couple of matches. I'm curious if you guys agree. I mean, definitely not the match against Canada. That was a bit of a disaster for the U.S. They didn't play well at all. But yeah, certainly this rebound match against Honduras in the freezing cold. And I think we should dedicate a bit of time to talking about the conditions and the overall organization that led to this game being a bit of a farce, all things considered. Because let's be honest here, like the U.S. did not need to host this game against Honduras in the freezing, freezing, frigid cold in order to like gain any sort of like home field advantage, right? Just did not need to happen. The U.S. are a superior team to Honduras. But I think, you know, Nathan, you mentioned this in the chat. It just speaks to 
you know, the poor organization of the USMNT, particularly on the logistics side for the past few years. And I think this is just a, a clear example of them getting it wrong once again. Yeah, I, I don't really know what the thinking was here. Like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that, you know, St. Paul, Minnesota might not be the most forgiving environment on February 2nd. Maybe they are hoping for a, a slightly different uh, readout from the Groundhog. But uh, I I think this game, it's, it's hard to analyze, right? Like, Honduras are already out of contention for qualification. They're, what, last place? in the sort of octagon standings. Um, they were clearly incredibly cold. They didn't use all of their practice time outside. When they did practice, they practiced in the like bubble at the Minnesota FC facilities. At halftime, they stayed in like a little longer than they were supposed to to try to get some warmth. It's, it's kind of hard to know how to read it, but obviously a win is a win, especially with a rotated team. I think... Pulisic, who maybe we can talk a little about, was quite poor against Canada and I think has looked a little, you know, lacking in confidence over the past few months for both club and country, you know, is able to get a goal. So that's good. Um, and definitely you need to pick up points against Honduras, but I'm not sure there's all that much to read from it. On, on terms of the Canada front, this was just a pretty disastrous loss. Um, and I think the issue the U.S. has right now is you know, if they can't beat Canada without Alfonso Davies with pretty much, you know, their strongest 11, I would say, for the most part, uh, what what can we really expect uh, going forward to a World Cup that I think has pretty high expectations? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, a couple, first of all, a couple of things. I thought Christian Pulisic was the worst player on the pitch in both the El Salvador and USA games. And I was kind of glad to see him benched because even though he is, I think, on his day, the best player uh, for the USMNT, he's not immune to being dropped if it means getting the team a better result. You know, he was subbed off in the 56th minute, sorry, the 65th minute against El Salvador. Um, and he obviously ended up being pretty poor throughout the entirety of the Canada game. Um, and I actually kind of liked the look that US had with Wea and Pepe. I do think that, in terms of World Cup qualifying, you're never, like, in general, there is not a correlation between how well you do in World Cup qualifying and how well you do in the World Cup. If you qualify for the World Cup, you kind of get a clean slate. And I think that, you know, as much as Canada was obviously missing Alfonso Davies, the U.S. is going to set up differently as well. You know, they're going to have Gio Reyna. You know, they're probably not going to be starting um, players like Kellen I mean, I would hope. You never know with Greg Berhalter, but you're probably not going to be starting Kellen Acosta or a Jordan Morris. I think um, he will. I mean, no, maybe I not Jordan not, Morris. That's the thing. Assuming Greg, assuming Triple G is still in charge. No, I, but, but the point is, I thought there were more promising signs over these three games, especially over the last game than anything else. And the U.S. is just about guaranteed. They've got a 99% chance of making it um, to the World Cup in 2022. And I think realistically in the octagon, you have to beat the bad teams and they've actually done a pretty good job of that. I still think they need to start scoring a lot more, but they've got matches with Mexico, Panama and Costa Rica, and they can be qualified before going down to Costa Rica on that last game. And I think it's pretty important that they at least get 
um, you know, four points from those previous games so they can punch their ticket all the way through. But all in all, I mean, the goal is making it right. Like I don't, it doesn't really matter if they finish second or third, the goal is automatic qualification. I think you want, you eventually want to see them put in consistent performances over 90 minutes. And I'm not sure we've seen that many times under Greg Berhalter. I will say the two players that I think really impressed this time around were Weston McKinney, who has been on fire both for the USMNT and Juventus this season since his suspension from the team in September. And I think he's responded to that really, really well. And also, I think Luca Della Torre, who is a player who I didn't really have on my radar all that much, but I thought he played a really interesting kind of Harvey Elliott-ish role where he was kind of a hybrid right-sided center mid, right winger, was able to have like the freedom of that side of the pitch. His heat map looked very much like a Harvey Elliott heat map. Um, so I thought him him being an option on that side of the field and depth for this USMNT is, is can only mean good things. Can we just talk about Canada for a second? Because John Herdman, who is the coach of the Canadian men's national team, coming over from the women's game, actually, he was the former coach of the Canada women's team, and he has made them such a tactically flexible, durable unit. And I think this Canada team can, if they... Um, you know, have a favorable-ish group at the World Cup, they can perhaps spring some upsets. But I think he's done a tremendous job. He's a coach that I think world soccer should be talking about right now. I mean, Canada has two of the three best players in the federation, in my opinion. I'm sorry, in, in all of CONCACAF, if not, you know, three of five, depending on, uh, you know, how Tejan Buchanan plays. But Jonathan David and Alfonso Davies, especially with, um, with Fonzie playing as a left winger, I think is something so cool. And I really like that sort of 3-5-2 that Canada used against the United States as well. They, they did not use that last night against El Salvador because they rotated pretty heavily. But I'm a big fan. I love uh, Milan Borjan, who obviously plays um, for, for Red Stars, Vezda, uh, rocking the sweatpants in that outdoor game. Uh, but yeah, they're a really talented team. And I think it's, it's, good, for, it's good for the Federation before... 2026 rolls around to have Canada, USA, and Mexico um, sort of in the driver's seat in 2022. And I think that sort of speaks for itself. And I like the fact that Canada and the States are undergoing this sort of golden generation right now. Meanwhile, Mexico, I I think Mexico, they are, I mean, (laughs) the rumor, the rumor was that Tata Martino was going to get sacked if they didn't beat Panama yesterday. And it took an 80th minute penalty for them to get through. They are only four points ahead of Panama for that, um, that automated that on um, that playoff spot. Uh, and I think they'll make it out. Okay. But for a team like Mexico that has so much talent, both in Europe and domestically and in MLS, they have been uh, pretty bad as well. So obviously they've got Memo Ochoa, who's probably the best goalie. Um, maybe aside from Kaylor Navas in all of Tata class, Martino but... hasn't been sacked by Mexico yet. No, he's Gerardo Martino. He do be chilling. Uh, that's a, that's chilling. insane considering yeah. how like the the Mexico Dude, Mexico is like coaches. Watford. Yeah. They're the yeah, Watford yeah, exactly. of national team management. Yeah, but they almost lost to 10 man Jamaica. They needed two late goals in that game. Uh 10 men Jamaica led for about 80 minutes in that one. Then they drew nil-nil with Costa Rica. They lost to Canada a few months ago. So yeah, I mean Mexico they are not they are actually I would say the third strongest team right now um in CONCACAF, but yeah, do we want anything else on Mexico before we maybe jump across the uh, the way? No, nah, they're just bad. No, yeah, I they're like really a margarita bad. every now and then. That's true. 
That's just on Mexico. Mexico you generally. Guys been to Mexico? I have been to Mexico. Yeah, I've been to Mexico like four times. Oh, cool. Yeah. The actually fun, fun little interlude here. The team that got me into jersey collecting was actually Cruz Azul, which is a. Uh, I'm sure you guys have seen the legendary Cruz Azul video. Yeah. But we don't have to. Oh, we don't have to. Yeah. You're going to have to put we'll, it at the we'll end. We'll link of this it in the podcast. show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, anyways, let's talk AFCON for a minute because the last time we talked, uh, you know, it was right before the round of 16. Uh, and we spent a lot of time talking about Comoros. But since then, uh, we had Egypt beating Morocco in extra time with Mo Salah scoring. We had Cameroon uh, pretty, pretty much single handedly wiping out the, the Comoros side of the bracket. And uh, Senegal have continued to be absolutely on fire. Um, they beat Burkina Faso, who kind of lucked their way through, um, you know, the quarterfinals to get to the semis. But, you know, Egypt today had a, a pretty nervy win on penalties over Cameroon and it was a pretty fiercely contested matchup. And now we've got Senegal, Egypt on Sunday. I know we talked about it a little bit in the intro, but uh, I have to say I've been pretty impressed with Senegal so far this tournament. Yes, I think Senegal, in my mind, Senegal are like massive favorites for this final. I think Senegal have been more consistent than, you know, any team other than, you know, Cameroon up until the semifinal here. And I think with Mane, who somewhat miraculously is playing, I thought after his head injury, I forget which game that was, um, he looked pretty, pretty concussed to me, uh, but he's been playing well since then. So I, I, I think Senegal look mighty, mighty, mighty fine. In terms of Egypt, um, I, I couldn't fully watch the game today, but you know, I was following along and Cameroon Egypt did not seem like the most exciting tie. You know, went to 120 minutes, then to penalties. Sala was getting hacked down left and right, barely could get a touch in. You know, Abubakar on the other side, who as Nick sort of showed me was kind of questioning Salah's credentials uh, before the game, uh, was also quite poor. And I think, you know, they're the hosts and they'll be, they'll be quite aggrieved not, not to have made it through. And Egypt, just, I don't think they have the quality throughout the team the way Senegal does. And based off of the performance against Cameroon, I'm not sure that Salah, Salah can do it alone, barring, you know, a stalwart defensive performance from the rest of his side. Yeah, I mean, this just goes to show Vincent. I'm going to start with Vincent Abubakar real quick that like you don't say these things prior to a big match because you know it's going to come back and like bite you in the ass, right? And it did. Actually, Vincent Abubakar did score his penalty. So I think he's absolved of that blame. But certainly, you know, uh, kind of like tempting fate there with his uh, not being impressed, quote unquote, with Mo Salah as a player. Uh, take yesterday in the lead up to this match but yeah I agree with you Caleb I think Senegal are the favorites for this game particularly because Sadio Mane looks like the Sadio Mane of two or three years ago when he was one of the five best attacking players in world football you know he looks like he has that little bit of of grit that little bit of finishing ability that he's sort of been lacking in the past two seasons um, he's doing like all of his flicks and tricks everything he looks like the Sadio Mane of Liverpool winning the league. He looks completely rejuvenated with this Senegal team. Maybe there is something about like him getting away from uh, a little bit more scrutiny than usual at Liverpool and him being able to really, you know, focus on the Senegalese team and, and play, play his trade as one of, as probably, you know, one of the top three players in African soccer. 
But yeah, I agree. I think Egypt, I just don't think they have the midfield, right? Senegal um, have a decent midfield and have a decent defense. I think Egypt can't really work. doesn't seem, don't seem to really be able to work the ball through the middle of the pitch um, as competently as some other teams in the tournament. Anything can happen. They have the greatest player on form in the world right now on their team in Mo Salah. But I do think Senegal might just, it might be a similar game to their semifinal where they could win this one like 3-1 or 3-0. Yeah, yeah. I just, I also think it's it's interesting that, you know, you have a coach in Aliou Cisse who has obviously been with Senegal for almost a decade now. He actually played for Senegal um, back when they made the final of AFCON in 2002 and lost on penalties, uh, I believe. Um, and obviously played in the, uh, in the World Cup for them as well. And I, I was reminded of the fact that Senegal were eliminated in 2018 by the fair play tiebreaker uh, in the World Cup when I was doing a little bit of research on them. But, uh, and I also didn't realize until today, or rather until the Morocco game, that the head coach of Egypt is Carlos Quiroz, who obviously did uh, really poorly with Colombia, um, but did lead Iran to a couple of World Cups as well. So it should be a good matchup. I agree that Senegal are a significantly more complete team. Uh, and Kiro's is banned from the touchline. No, right. Yeah, he got sent yeah. off. And Kiro's got <laughs> sent off in the 90th minute. Um, and now yeah. he's gonna miss the game. So I, I don't know. I would say I would say Senegal are, are pretty heavy favorites. And uh, you know, I think they have the best goalie in the competition and the second best winger in the competition, if not the best when it comes to Mane versus Salah, as well as players like Buna Sar. Uh, and a player who I really liked is uh Amadou Dieng who I haven't really seen play that much because I just don't watch Ligue 1 the same way that I watch a lot of other leagues because of, you know, where the matches are are hosted in terms of streaming. But he's only 21 years old, but I thought he was like 23 or 24. I was really impressed uh, with how he's played. So keep an eye out Sunday at 2. It's it's an FA Cup weekend this weekend as well. So there's a lot of sort of trophies on the line or or sort of trophies rather than uh, league play, which I kind of like coming out of an international break. Um, I also like that uh, Senegal, you could field almost an entire team of just Mendes, Diallos, and Sars, and Gaze. Uh, they brought whoa, two, no, they brought two Sars off the bench uh, today. Sorry, it's just funny. Uh, Why don't we, yeah. on that note, uh... <laughs> I'm going to mute myself. <laughs> I'm just going to let this keep rolling. On that note, let's talk some transfers because we obviously are only a few days removed from transfer deadline day. From an Arsenal perspective, not a whole lot happened, but the same could not be said for Liverpool or Barcelona. And I feel like, Caleb, it's only natural for us to start with the Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang transfer because it affects you know both of our clubs. I am ecstatic about this transfer. It is the biggest favor that Barcelona could do for us. Um, and in a long history of Barcelona buying Arsenal captains, this is the one that I think hurts Arsenal the least and has the lowest ceiling for Barcelona. Am I being a little bit too harsh here? Uh, I mean, it, it depends. On one hand, Arsenal have scored like what? They scored like no goals in January pretty much. So selling your striker disgruntled or not and not bringing anyone in to replace him is, is perhaps not the best move. From a Barcelona side, I mean, I did not especially want him. Um, <laughs> you know, he's had a lot of, you know, personal, 
problems recently getting sent home uh, from AFCON, even from his national team. Um, clearly, he had differences with Arteta that affected his willingness to play. Xavi in the past has said that he did not want to sign uh, Abemayang. Uh, I'm not sure what happened to that, but but here we are, and Barcelona, you know, have a very retooled offense. I would say going into the second half of the season, also bringing in um, Adama Traore from Wolves, who is a former uh, Barcelona player and then Ferran Torres from Manchester City so it'll definitely be a very new look Barcelona in the new year um, I'm not totally sure how Alba fits into this um, I'm not sure who will be preferred him versus Depay but I, I'm at the stage where I'm play, placing my my trust in uh, Xavi, Laporta and especially uh, Alimani uh, who is so far not not really put a step wrong so if you feel good about it, that's great. I, I feel kind of neutral on it. Um, and overall, I think it probably hurts you more than we necessarily improve. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at on this one. Yes, suck it. No, I think... Um, <laughs> you can edit that, edit that up if you want to. Um, no, I'm keeping it. <laughs> oh, yeah, do whatever you want. I think um, it's kind of interesting because Adama returning to his old club... Uh, after you know many years away at this point, he's taken a prominent shirt number. He's taken the number 11. It looks like he'll be playing in his favored right wing position. Um, Aubameyang, I think, is a huge question mark for Barcelona. I am not sure how much Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang has left in the tank. He was considering a move to Saudi Arabia in this January window, which sort of indicates um, that you know maybe, perhaps, he thinks he or his camp was pushing him to maybe drop down a level. I know Aubameyang has always been kind of a fierce competitor, but that's always that move just kind of smelt a little off somewhat, not only because it was a Saudi Arabian club that was interested in him, but I, I think Barca need, you know, a tried and true finisher, right? Especially with Ansu Fati continuing to struggle with injury problems. And they just need someone who is going to meet the ball at the penalty spot and get a shot on target. And I think with Aubameyang in a totally new environment, it sounds like he really soured on his relationship with Mikel Arteta. And hopefully, you know, Xavi can be someone who puts his arm around him and can make him feel like he's part of a unit again and step up to the level. Um, I, I think he's definitely, you know, in certain ways, a lower risk transfer than bringing in someone as controversial as Alvaro Morata. But it will be it will be seen. I'm really interested to see how this plays out. I was certainly not expecting, you know, Oba to go to Barca. So I'm intrigued. Uh, yeah, I mean, the way the transfer was carried out was so Barcelona and to a certain extent so Arsenal as well. But you know, the fact that it wasn't, you know, a transfer, Arsenal had to terminate Aubameyang's contract, paying about seven million, and then Barcelona signing him on a free for salary cap and La Liga registration purposes. The reason that I am pretty pleased with that bit of business in particular is that it was pretty clear that he and Arteta had irreconcilable differences and he hadn't scored in a really long time. You know, he'd only scored four goals this year um, and it saves Arsenal about $39 million in wages. Uh, and clearly Arsenal's plan this past window was to get Vahovic. And when that went south, they weren't willing to get the wrong person and overstand. 
And I think that speaks to sort of Arsenal's position in the market, which is a weak buying team. And we have done such a terrible job. Arsenal have done such a terrible job of buying players in the last four or five years that we've basically had to pay a lot of them to go away. You think about the likes of, say, Ed Kolasinac, Mesut Ozil, Alexis Sanchez ending up, you know, leaving the club in sort of not a disgrace, but not Arsenal weren't able to really recoup anything from him except for, uh, you know, Henrik Mkhitaryan. The list goes on and on. Socrates, another player who left basically for free, that it seems like Arsenal have learned their lesson a little bit when it comes to making dumb purchases just for the sake of buying players. I think it sets Arsenal up for a huge summer, like a 200 million kind of summer, because they've cleared out so much dead weight from their wage books. That being said, if Lacazette gets injured or if Bukayo Saka gets injured, we're kind of totally screwed. Or the big one, if Takahiro Tomiyasu gets injured, we're totally screwed. So it's a calculated gamble and one that I think could pay off. I generally think that short-term pain, long-term gain is a, is a good way to, to approach the January transfer window. But I do wish there was a part of us, a part of me that, you know, saw us bring in someone at least on loan who could cover um, a couple of positions. But Nick, uh, obviously Liverpool made their bit of January business as well. And I think you're probably pretty happy with it. Yeah, so this was a move that totally came out of nowhere. I think it had been rumored that Liverpool were interested in Luis Diaz, but the price at 80 million was something that they weren't willing to pay, particularly in January where Liverpool are really, really stingy. And they have been stingy for the past, you know, two or three transfer windows. However, it seems as though the threat of Tottenham getting a player that Jurgen Klopp admires so much in Diaz and someone who I think Caleb, you sent this to the, to our Instagram chat is so statistically compatible on the left-hand side of the pitch as Sadio Mane and someone who is four or five years his junior at all, the age of 24, I think is something that is really exciting and they had to snap at this opportunity. And so we thank Tottenham. We thank Tottenham for negotiating for, it looks like about a week and a half to lower the price of Luis Diaz. They're a small Diaz. club, man. They're a small club. I appreciate it as well. To lower, to lower the price of Luis Diaz to around $40 million in Liverpool, we're allowed to swoop in and seal the deal. And I'm really excited because I think he is by far and away the best player in the Portuguese league. You know, He already has 24 goals in all competitions this season. He scored some incredible goals for Colombia at the Copa America last year. Um, he has 16 goals in the Portuguese league this season. And I think he's going to bring a little bit more flair to this Liverpool front line and certainly, you know, compete with Sadio Mane upon Mane's return from AFCON. I think he's an ideal purchase for Liverpool. And also it looks like, you know, the deal collapsed at the uh, the last second for Fabio Carvalho from Fulham. You know, the 20-year-old, the 20 really exciting um, sort of second striker, striker-ish prospect who scored I think around eight goals in the championship this season in not so many appearances. He's been very good. And it looks like that deal is going to be done on a free in the summer. So really good business from Liverpool who have acted late once again, but I think this time have yielded far better results in Julian Ward's first transfer window as, you know, chief negotiator and sporting director. Yeah. I think this is, this is a massive, uh, this is a massive transfer. Luis Diaz, um, the growth he's he's gone through this year and i think nick you mentioned you know 
you started to see signs of it uh, for Colombia at the Copa America, where I think, you know, he was one of the players of the tournament um, to, to this season, just becoming an absolute monster on the left wing uh, for Porto. Th- this, this is such a good move. I think I don't really see how it can go wrong. And, and as you said, He'll be coming completely into his prime just when Mane is perhaps leaving it or, um, as we've discussed a few times, potentially leaving on a free soon. And this is a massive, massive, massive upgrade over Minamino, who I think has not covered himself in in glory uh, recently. So a great move. I, I do want, maybe moving on from Liverpool, want to highlight another uh, South American talent that made the move to the Premier League uh, delayed until uh, the summer, but Julian Alvarez, uh, forward from River Plate, signed by City for 15 million, has equally been just amazing in the Argentinian league. Um, a, and a, a, just a great, complete forward who can score, who can assist. And I am really, really excited uh, for him to become the next sort of Argentinian to pick up the striker mantle for City. This yeah, is I mean, another it example. Probably, it probably oh, takes sorry. them out of the Holland race, which I think is probably good for the Premier League as well. But Nick, go ahead. I just was going to say this is a, this is another example of how well run of a club Manchester City are because there were absolutely no rumors that Julian Alvarez was going to be headed over there. That they were in talks. It looks like this deal had been mooted for a while and it had been worked on for a while. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get the Fabrizio Romano notification that Julian Alvarez is signing on a pre-contract with Man City. They did a very similar thing with Gabriel Jesus from Palmeiras back in the day. And it looks like, you know, when Man City wants a player, they are going to do whatever they can to get him. And they're not going to do it in a way that it, like kicks up a lot of a storm. So I Julian mean, I Alvarez... Think I, but I think it's easy to be really well run in that sense when you have an obscene amount of money. You know, well, because you don't need to use the public forum to sort of play into your ability to bargain. That's true. But I also think we've seen cases of clubs with a lot of revenue and money just to throw around be run quite poorly. I think there are people at Man City who their job is specifically to look at the football side of things and player development side of things. And I think, you know, the business people run the business side of Man City and then the football ops guys run the football ops side of Man City. And that is because, you know, there's a lot of money to go around to pay a lot of high profile people to run the club. But I think it is a testament again to, you know, City's resources and due to that, how well run they are as a, as a unit. Before we move on to Everton, which I think is where we want to close out our show today, talking about their transfers and more importantly, their manager. I think we probably need to talk a little bit about Spurs because they obviously made a couple of big deals at the deadline, but they also maybe admitted to a mistake if it's fair and, and sort of loaned Brian Heal back to La Liga. They brought in, obviously, uh, Rodrigo Betancourt and uh, Kuliszewski, Kuliszewski from, from Juve. It's an interesting move um, for a number of reasons. And I'm not, I like the transfers that they brought in, but I'm still not totally convinced they have what it takes to finish top four, top five. Um, even with their new additions. I'm curious if you guys feel any different, uh, even with their sale of Dele Ali. Yeah, this uh, Spurs, I don't think had the best window. Um, I personally have never been a big sort of 
Rodrigo Bentoncourt fan. I think he's a pretty average player for Juve that for whatever reason got a lot of minutes. Um, Kuliszewski, I think, is a more interesting transfer. Uh, I think we're not quite sure what his level is, but he's certainly very adaptable. I think the bigger story, though, is Conte is kind of firmly putting his stamp on the team uh, and moving out pretty much all of the big transfers from you know his predecessors since uh, Pochettino left. So Ndombele going back to Lyon, um, uh, Lo Celso going to Villarreal, Heal going to Valencia, Deli Ali going to Everton. I-, I think this was you know a bit of clearing the deadwood from old managers. But honestly, on the balance of things, I'm not sure Benton Coor, in my mind, is better or offers that much more than Lo Celso or Ndombele. Um, and Kuliszewski, it's, it's unclear exactly what role he'll play in the team. And it's a little unimaginative, too, for Conte just to go to Juve to find players. Um, I don't think that's like the best, the best look for him. But also, we know that they had several other things in the works that fell apart, a la Luis Diaz. So well, it's not it's not Conte, it's Fabio Paratici. Paratici, yeah. Yeah, who but I, I mean, mean like part it's of in his, combination, right? right? Yeah. Like I, yeah. <laughs> and and you know, they have worked together in the past. So there, there is, you know, it's a tandem bike. But I think Paratici has really uh, so far failed to have the I think marquee impact uh, of someone of his standing in the game should be having on a club like Tottenham Hotspur with the resources that they have. And I agree with you, Caleb. I don't think Benton Core is an amazing signing. I think he's not the player that the Spurs team needs right now. Ironically, I think Newcastle got the player that Spurs really needed the most in a progressive midfielder like Bruno Guimaraes. I don't think Benton Core solves really any of their problems in terms of midfield creativity. I think Kuliszewski occupies a position that... Spurs already have a few people who can play in these like half winger type players. You think about Son, you think about Mora, you think about Bergvine who didn't leave the club in January and he's like looking to get back into the fold with some really good performances. I just think, I don't know, there, there, is, there does seem to be a bit of a, a lull in terms of the transfer operations at Tottenham. There seem to be running a little bit about out of ideas. And I think Nathan, you said they admitted to a mistake in Brian Heal. They admitted to if you want to look at it this way, they admitted to, you know, two more mistakes in Tongan, Dombele, and Gio Lachelso, two their two highest record transfers ever leaving the club just after three years. Yeah. Under I mean, three years, actually. Yeah. And I mean, we also have talked about this at length, but Emerson Royale for 30 million is one of the worst transfers of the Premier League this last year, based on the way he's played. And that might be a little bit harsh on him, um, because it's not like 30 million is like great shakes in this market but he has been so bad and even you know even someone like christian romero who i don't think we've seen the best of yet at 55 million that's still a pretty good chunk of money for a club that historically has operated with with tighter pockets under you know their current ownership so i don't know i i i'm not saying this just because it's spurs i do think that they have had some pretty dicey transfer business especially since the departure of pochettino um, and this window, I think, shows that clubs are more willing right now to cut their losses earlier than they have been in the past. I mentioned him a little bit when we talked about Arsenal, but you know, Arsenal were heavy in pursuit of Fiorentina striker Dusan Vlahovic. 
obviously didn't end up going to Arsenal, made the sort of traditional Serie A move to uh, Juve, whose goals have dried up a little bit um, for a pretty outrageous transfer fee, um, an agent fee. I think it's a great transfer for all parties involved. I do feel like uh, his agent is a bit uh, dodgy, but I think we should probably talk a little bit about this deal and what it means for the Bianco Neri. Yeah, I mean, premium goal scorer, right? They have a, a premium goal scorer yet again after the departure of Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, when a player like Vlahovic becomes available, who know who you know can provide proven goals at a really incredible rate, you need to sign him. And Juve have the cash from you know Cristiano Ronaldo leaving the club, among other things. You know their debt situation isn't as horrible as it was around a year and a half, two years ago. So when when if Vlahovic wants to move to a team like Juve, then that transfer is going to happen. And Juve, once again, have themselves one of the best goal scorers in the world. Yeah, I think this is this is an excellent move on their part. They get a player that has already demonstrated that he can score in this league. Um, and I think other teams in Syria should take note. Another Juventus signing that I think went a little under the radar, but I think is really, really good is Dennis Sicaria uh, from Munchen Gladbach. I think he's been one of the best midfielders in the Bundesliga for a few years now. And for 4.2 million, when you know Spurs are signing Bentancourt for 15.9, a great bit of business that perhaps balances out the sort of excessive uh, fee for Vlahovic. On Vlahovic, did you guys see that the mayor of Florence called for a day of mourning upon him leaving the club? <laughs> That's pretty like funny, that. actually. I will say, I will say, looking at the finances of that deal, I am pretty relieved that Arsenal didn't pay, you know, what Juve did. Because I just don't think Arsenal could really afford the 15 million in agents fees, the, you know, 300,000 pounds a week, um, you know, wage for a guy who, yes, He's young, but um, still certainly has his best playing days ahead of him. I think it's good for Juve, though. I think Juve still probably won't end up winning the Scudetto this year, um, even with bringing in a goal scorer like that. But I yeah, have to yeah. say, I'm, I'm a big fan of the upgrading your central midfielder while also profiting on a transfer to Spurs um, look for them. Uh, obviously, you know, Anthony Martial also made a transfer this window. Um, and I think it's a, a pretty good deal for all parties involved. It's pretty clear that, you know, his, his role in this current United team was not what he would want to settle for. And I think he can probably find pastures greener in a club that's, you know, a little bit uh, more free flowing, a little bit less structured and, and probably in a different league um, like Sevilla. Yeah, no, I think Martial to Sevilla is a very Sevilla-type transfer. I think he can be very good. Um, he just hasn't had, you know, the opportunity or sort of conducive environment at Man U. He does join a pretty, like, large squad of of wide attacking players at Sevilla's disposal, including, you know, uh, Tecatito or Jesus Corona, who they signed uh, for, for pretty cheap uh, from Porto. But he'll have to also fight, you know, off... Papu Gomez and Luxa Campos, um, Munir, et cetera, for minutes. But I think Sevilla are doubling down on their, you know, title chase right now. They're the closest contender, only like, you know, like four or five points out from Madrid right now. And this is a pretty low risk, 
move. There was no loan fee. There was no permanent option agreed. It was a pure loan. They just have to pay his wages. And it's possible that Martial, you know, comes good. Yeah. And I think the benefit for Martial is that he's going to be playing in a far less physical league and one where I think he's going to be able to kind of use a lot more of the tricks in his bag. I always think about, you know, that debut goal he scored against Liverpool and he scored, you know, a lot more goals like that where he can use his dribbling, he can use his skills, he can use his fluidity. And I think La Liga is probably the perfect league for him to demonstrate that. And it'll be interesting to see where Lapategui positions him because for United, you know, he was both a left winger and a striker and he provided his best goal return um, in 1920 as, you know, an out and out number nine. So that's clearly, I think, probably the position that suits him the best. But like you said, Caleb, you know, there's a lot of competition uh, towards the top of the pitch for Sevilla. And but I think, you know, Martial, it's a, it's a no brainer if you're Sevilla, especially when you've gone through the amount of injuries that they have gone through this season. Yeah. And in general, I feel like there was a lot of players uh, from the Premier League in particular that that found new homes uh, in La Liga this winter. So I think it will be you know, interesting to see how the second half of the season shakes out there while we're in Spain. Uh, we, we'd be remiss not to mention the results of the Copa del Rey quarterfinals yesterday in today. Um, yesterday, it was Rayo Vallecano booking their first time in the semifinal in like 40 years uh, with a 1-0 win over Mallorca. Valencia beat Cadiz 2-1. to one. Uh, Today, uh, Betis, who have also been really good uh, this year, and I'm looking forward to the El Gran Derby later this month, beat Sociedad 4-0, but the shock result of the day was Athletic Club, who played Madrid for what seems like the fifth time in about, you know, a month, finally, finally, finally getting, play every week, Caleb. Pretty much uh, getting a 1-0 win with a goal from Berenguer in the 89th minute to send themselves to the semifinals. It will now be one of Vallecano, Betis, Bilbao, and Valencia in what, you know, is, is probably one of the most open uh, Copa del Rey's we've, we've seen since the <laughs> Bilbao Sociedad, what was it, 20, 2021 that was played in 2021 uh, final last year. Well, yeah, I think that's why this is so significant is because Bilbao had that heartbreaking loss against Sociedad in the, you know, whatever Copa del Rey it was. And I then a week really later against Barcelona in the second Copa del Rey final that they were in. Poor Bilbao. Yeah. So this is huge for them. You know, I think they could, they have a really good opportunity to win a trophy for the first time. And I think it's like over 30 years, at least something like that for a club of, you know, Bilbao's reputation. But yeah, I think it's a, it is a wide open tournament. It's good to see that, you know, the, the, the magic of the Copa del Rey has, uh, is truly alive and well. Know that Rio Vallecano, the scenes at their stadium, uh, yesterday evening was kind of just remarkable to see and their rise this year in La Liga has I think one of been been one of the the more you know underrated stories in all of soccer so I'm really intrigued I'm definitely invested um, and I'm, I'm excited to see and track you know the progress of the rest of the tournament yeah certainly uh, Betis have been scoring at will uh, as of late and you know it's never never not fun to see uh, Real Madrid lose a little bit.
Um, but I think on that note, we have to wrap up with Everton because talk about the sort of island of misfit toys. They are collecting um, midfielders on all levels of stuff. And we talked about their managerial situation last time. They finally have resolved that by bringing in the one and only Frank Lampard. Since then, they've also brought in Donny van der Beek on loan and purchased Deli Ali. I don't know. I'm not totally inspired by anything that's gone on um, up there in the last couple of weeks. I mean, they're, the transfers that they've brought in, it feels like a 12-year-old who has been given the reins of like a FIFA career mode. Um, I mean, I, I right, like, like buying players he vaguely remembers were good for a few years ago, but he doesn't really watch all that much. Like it's truly as if Frank Lampard perhaps hasn't like watched the game since, since losing his job at Chelsea. I mean, Deli Ali, I, I mean, it's on a free for now, um, but with, you know, 30 million in add-ons, I just don't know if you're really willing to like bet relegation battle on Deli Ali rediscovering his touch. Donny van de Beek, I think, is perhaps a little more sensible. I think he's had a bad go of it at Man U, but has some quality and is probably hungrier to, to prove himself in the league. But I'm also trying to imagine a situation where both of them are like starting together in like a midfield two of some kind, and I don't see it ending especially well. Anwar Al Ghazi, a kind of very league average attacker. Not sure you get all that much from that. Um, Nathan Patterson isn't isn't the worst transfer in the world, but Lampard is a strange appointment, I think, given the position they're in. And Deli Ali and Donny Van de Beek on paper kind of be like, oh wow, these are quality name brand players. But I also don't know if their actual level backs up their name right now. I think this goes back to our discussion about Fahad Mashiri, right? The owner of Everton who seems to have a, a heavy hand in picking the direction of the club. We know that he has a really close relationship with Kia Jarabshin, which is why Anwar Al-Ghazi came into the club in the first place from out of nowhere, it seems. And I also think he's someone who really appreciates like the celebrity appointment, right? The Carlo Ancelotti. Um, so in the James Rodriguez signing, you know, he likes these high profile these high profile gets. And I think Frank Lampard fits right into that. And obviously, you know, there was the whole Vitor Pereira embarrassment where he went on like live television and like shat all over himself in like trying to muscle his way into the job, which I think ultimately cost him it. But I think Lampard, there, there's been a couple encouraging things that I will give him credit for. One of them is that he has totally changed his backroom staff. I think the real dig at him at Chelsea was that he had no idea how to organize a defense. This time around, you know, Jody Morris has stayed at Chelsea. So he's brought in um, Paul Clement, Carlo Ancelotti's former assistant manager at Real Madrid. And he's also brought in Ashley Cole from Chelsea to join his backroom staff. Ashley Cole, one of the best defenders in Premier League history. And I think this Everton team just needs a bit of a refresh in terms of morale. I think Frank Lampard is that bit of that glitz and glamour appointment that I think can get players excited. You know, it remains to be seen how long that lasts, but they need to get results quickly. And they have a massive, huge game against Newcastle coming up next week that needs to be a must win 
for Frank. And as far as Deli Ali goes, I think he could actually end up finding some form at Everton. Frank Lampard is someone who is pretty close with him, it seems. They have a pretty good relationship. But yeah, I think this is probably no last chance saloon for Delhi in terms of opportunities. So, I mean, he has to impress and Frank has to get the best out of him. And certainly this squad is very, very limited in terms of his options that, that he had at Chelsea. So it's a good test for him to really see what he's made out of as a manager and how far he's developed in the past year or so. Yeah, well, after what seemed like the longest international break of all time, we've got FA Cup action this weekend. I will say not the greatest ties in this one. Um, Liverpool obviously play Cardiff on Sunday. You've got Boreham Wood in the fifth tier going up against championship favorites Bournemouth. But uh, a little Midlands you know, Derby, a Leicester bit, versus yeah, Nottingham. Yeah, that's um, a big game in that big, circle. It, yeah, it's a big game. Um, but you know, the biggest game of the weekend probably Barca at Letty um, in La Liga, and then of course we've got the return of the Prem uh, in the midweek, which will be uh, good to see. I think there's probably a place in time for us to talk a little bit about Manchester United from a transfer perspective, from a personnel perspective, but we can save that for next time. When we come back, we will have plenty of updates on FA Cup fixtures, the Premier League, and probably you know a preview of Champions League and Europa League ties to come now that we are you know, only a few weeks away from the Europa League round of 32 and Champions League round of 16. But I've been Nathan Strauss. Until next time, uh, I've been Nathan Strauss. Did that backwards. Caleb Ritz. Nick Vinden. And we will see you all next time.